May 40 here. My, my favorite uh, weekly column in the New York Times is by Thomas Edsel. He's uh, center-left, and he's got a column this week. This is Trump's magic trick. And uh, important read, and here's some of my favorite bits from this column. At the start of this year, Donald Trump announced his education agenda, declaring that he would issue mandates to keep men out of women's sports. I'm all down with that. And teacher tenure. I'm ambivalent about that. Cut federal aid to any school system that teaches critical race theory, gender ideology, or other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content onto our children. Okay. As the saying goes, Trump declared, personnel is policy. At the end of the day, we have pink-haired communists teaching our kids we have a major problem. So... Apparently, Donald Trump has lined up about 50,000 people ready to take the reins of the federal government if he wins re-election. Right, people who are on board with his agenda, which I broadly am, I'm for restricting immigration and becoming more protectionist with trade. So Trump revealed his plan to protect children from left-wing gender insanity, promised to bring a halt to gender-affirming care, meaning <laughs> stop, stop allowing doctors to mutilate children to punish doctors who provide gender-affirming care, otherwise known as mutilation to minors, and to pass legislation declaring that the only genders recognized by the United States government are male and female, and they are assigned at birth, right? I, I wish you would use the word sex instead of gender. No serious country should be telling its children that they were born with the wrong gender. Under my leadership, this madness will end. Okay, I'm broadly on board with that. So here's, here's a key quote from this New York Times article. No serious country should be telling its children that that they were born with the wrong gender. Okay, Trump's message of 2016 was one of national liberation for constituencies whose anger had been growing since the 1960s. So there's appropriate anger, there's inappropriate anger. So if you walk around with a sense of anger at a 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10, even 3 out of 10 intensity scale, right, on a day-in, day-out basis, all right, that'll probably be in your best interest because it will connect you to other people. And... It will give you clarity about right and wrong, about what your mission is in life, all right? It will connect you to an in-group, all right? It will be tremendously clarifying. So a lot of benefits walking around with a mild sense of resentment, maybe, say, a 2 out of 10. But if you're walking around with a 5 out of 10 or a higher sense of anger and resentment, all right, that's usually not going to serve you well because that would distort your interactions with with reality so if instead you think about people who've been kind to you think about people who've been good to you and spend much more time in that that mode right where you're in touch with all the kindness and the goodness that you've received or the love that you've received and then take that out into the world generally speaking that'll make you more effective and saner and happier so donald trump Donald Trump's message has been one of national liberation for constituency whose anger has been growing since the 1960s. He smashed taboos. His rallies were enormously liberating, a huge rush of emotion and relief for his supporters. Yes, I definitely experienced that. It was the return of the repressed, a cultural counter-revolution, a genie out of the bottle. Once you unleash those hatreds, right, if you love anything, you're going to hate that which threatens it. The huge pleasure that many people take in those hatreds. Well, if you love something, you're going to hate that which threatens it. It takes some time to put the genie back into the bottle. Well, if people love, they will inevitably hate, right? There's no love without hatred.
Republicans in the mass are no more conspiracy-minded than Democrats. True. There is a market for GOP candidates who traffic in populist and conspiratorial claims. But overall, Republican voters are no more likely to be conspiracy theorists than Democrats. So think of Donald Trump's coalition as a combination of a little traditional conservatism, some social conservatism on steroids, and a heavy dose of anti-establishment sentiment and populism. And here's another good quote. Trump is a self-serving opportunist who courts people who glorify him and enable him to keep a puffed-up image of himself as an indispensable leader prominently before the public. He needs and wants to stay front stage center, and for that to happen, he will court and cater to a coalition of ardent supporters, his MAGA crowd. And then another political scientist says, Trump has identified a large segment of the American population that is not particularly ideological, nor particularly attached to the two major parties. These individuals are distrustful of the government, animated by an anti-establishment political worldview, holds that politicians are unresponsive to their constituents, corrupt and or too eager to conspire against the people. So why do those who love Donald Trump love Donald Trump? Right? It's not because of inherent qualities of Donald Trump. I mean, why do you love Luke Ford? To the extent that you might love Luke Ford, all right, it's because I'm doing something for you. And to the extent that you love Donald Trump, it's because he does something for you. So there's this great journalist, Mark Leibovich, right, writes in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and his uh, latest book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. And he lambasts all these Republican politicians who essentially bent the knee to Donald Trump. But the reason that Republican politicians have bent the knee to Donald Trump was in order to get things that they wanted, to move closer to outcomes that they desired. Right? To the extent that people love Donald Trump or to the extent that people love Barack Obama or, or Joe Biden, it's because these people serve as vehicles for regular Americans to get closer to the type of America that they want to live in. Right. People don't love Donald Trump by and large just for you know his innate qualities. Right. People love people because those people do something for them. They provide energy. They provide enthusiasm. They provide an outlet. They provide entertainment. They provide thought-provoking content. They provide you know unexpected analyses. They provide reliability. They provide connection. They provide sex. They provide money. They provide companionship. All right. We love people because of what they can do for us by and large. And that goes for Donald Trump as well. His supporters love him because he serves as a vehicle for national liberation for probably a third of Americans, probably identify with with Donald Trump, you know, serving as a liberating force. Right. Here is uh, Josh Hawley talking to Tucker Carlson. Yeah, and I don't think they're unrelated at all, Tucker. I mean, the truth is that Joe Biden and let's face it, congressional Republicans have spent over yeah. 100 billion dollars in counting on the Ukraine war. And meanwhile, the folks in East Palestine have poison in the water, poison in the air. It's clear that our infrastructure in this country is crumbling. And what is this administration doing about it? Frankly, what is Congress doing about it? Not a whole heck of a lot. And I think that that's a stark contrast. And I would just say to Republicans, listen, you can either be the party of Ukraine and the globalists, or you can be the party of East Palestine and the working people of this country. But it's time to say to the Europeans, no more welfare for Europeans. Let the Europeans take the lead on Europe. It is time to put the working people of this country first to make those folks strong again and to make this country strong again. 
Yeah, and I don't think they're unrelated at all, Tucker. I mean, the truth is that Joe Biden... Yeah, I'll sign out with that, but let's get some commentary here from Richard Spencer. It says, Republicans have no policies to help out average Americans. That's bogus. Republicans do have policies to help out average Americans. The problem for Richard Spencer, he doesn't recognize this, is because these policies aren't exciting. Right? There's a really boring policy that will dramatically improve the quality of life in America. It's boring. It's relatively simple. It is you lock up violent criminals for many decades, right? You take the 1% of the population who act as super predators and you lock them up for several decades and you will slash our crime rates. You will slash our murder rates. You will slash our rape rates. You will slash our assault with deadly weapon rates. You will double the quality of life in America, right? Such a simple policy that Republicans by and large stand behind, right? Put in prison for a long time people who commit violent crimes. Simple, boring, not exciting, not edgy, not unique, right? Not cutting edge, not something that's just going to, you know, blast through your brain. It's like, oh, wow, I've never thought of that, right? If you reduce violent crime in this country just by 50%, you will effectively double the quality of life for tens of millions of Americans. Chris Horton says the problem with America is the national trajectory, not crime. Well, national trajectory as opposed to your ideal trajectory of what America should be like or America's national trajectory as compared to other countries in this fallen world, to use a Christian metaphor, compared to other countries in this fallen world, America is on a trajectory to be even stronger in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, right? America is on a national trajectory to be even stronger over the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years relative to other countries than it is right now. So America's national trajectory, right, it comes with declining social trust. America definitely has severe problems, declining social cohesion. We've endured rising crime rates since the Ferguson effect and the explosion of Black Lives Matter in 2014. But as far as the relative power, economic and military of the United States, vis-a-vis -vis its major competitors, such as Japan, Germany, China and, and Russia, right, the United States of America is vastly outstripping our major competitors. Who cares, says Chris Alton, it's bad for me. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, that's a, that's a thoughtful comment. Wow, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback by that comment. It's such an obvious comment and I have nothing to say. Okay, so Daniel Torday, all right, he is a teacher of creative writing at university and i come to you today to criticize something he just published in the atlantic magazine but i didn't want to just you know criticize him uh, i wanted to you know open up a chance for a, for a dialogue and so i reached you know i wanted to reach out to him i went to, he's got a website so he's all into the promotion but there's absolutely no way to contact him on his website he lists his publisher, right? He lists his agent. He lists, you know, his agent for lectures and speaking. He lists his agent for film. But there's no way you can contact him. 
He doesn't want to hear from you. I, I, I looked at his Twitter. There's no way to contact him over Twitter either. So he has zero interest in hearing from you. So I tried. I wanted to reach out. I wanted to talk about his article here in The Atlantic. What active shooter training steal from synagogues? I've long been ambivalent about the effects of such drills, feeling at times that in doing so, we lose something essential. So, uh, is it last week? Or was it uh, last week? Uh, no, the week before, we had uh, two Jews just uh, a few blocks from me get shot as they were you know, walking away from, from synagogue. We had uh, an attack on a synagogue in Pittsburgh where approximately 11 Jews died. We had an attack at a synagogue in Poway, San Diego, where one Jew died. But for this creative writing teacher, the most important thing about the safety of Jews is his exquisite feelings. Can you believe this? I, I can't imagine writing an article about you know creating safe institutions for, for Jews, for blacks, for for the transgendered, for gays, for, for any group, and making the the primary angle your feelings about that. Like, who gives a toss whether or not Daniel Torday is feeling ambivalent or whatever he's feeling about active shooter trainings in synagogues? Right? There's one overwhelmingly important question with active shooter trainings is, do they work? Do they make people better prepared to deal with you know, an unthinkable threat, right? If they work, if they they are making institutions and people feel safer legitimately, it's helping to protect people from, from bad guys, then that's overwhelmingly what, what's most important. How you feel about it is something that you would discuss between you and your therapist, right? And I am all about sharing feelings, right? This is a feeling-free, you know, whatever you're feeling, let's talk about it, bring it out. But for, for some stories, making the primary focus your feeling is just absurd at best, obscene at worst. Right? I mean, you have Jews getting shot, and this guy's primary concern is how he feels about training to reduce the number of Jews getting shot. Okay, well, we had a synagogue in Germany where you had a shooter go to it, he intended to shoot everyone there. And because they had such, you know, a solid door, they had such a solid protection plan in place, the shooter didn't get inside and didn't get to kill any Jews, right? It's just such a simple calculus. Are uh, These forms of training and other forms of protection for any institution, are they making people and institutions and communities safer or less safe? Such a, such a basic question, but... His his main concern is how he feels about it. So he spent a day at his synagogue in Philadelphia, the Germantown Jewish Center. Not a synagogue, he says, that he attends very often. So he's gone for an active shooting uh, training. And why did he attend? Because he felt compelled, right? It, it's all about his feelings. He He felt compelled. And then he felt ambivalent. I've long been ambivalent. Why would anyone care aside from Daniel Torday and his closest friends and family, why would anyone else care about him long feeling ambivalent about anything, right? Anything to do with public safety, anything to do with public policy, right? Either public policy X is effective, ineffective, 
good value for the money, good value for the disruption that it causes, or it has a negative effect, or it is not good value. But to me, the, these public policy, public safety questions are just incredibly basic. And how I feel about them just doesn't matter. I mean, what kind of freak thinks that, that when it comes to public safety, particularly w- within his own in-group, right, his own extended family, right, what's most important is how he feels about it. I mean, this is not someone who demonstrates, argues, claims any expertise in matters of public safety, synagogue safety, institutional safety, communal safety. Right? He, has, he claims, presents no evidence that he has any expertise in this area. Instead, his primary focus is how he feels about a public policy. Like, why would anyone care how you feel about public public policy X Y Z A B C D E F G, I mean, what is wrong with you that you think that the most important thing for you to say in an article in the Atlantic is how you feel about a public policy where you have zero expertise and you apparently have also zero interest in developing any expertise in the area that you're writing about? So he's long been ambivalent about increasing security at houses of worship, more specifically. Oh, wow. Okay, either increasing security at houses of worship or any institution or any community or any group or any individual, either it increases safety or it doesn't increase safety or it makes safety worse. Such basic, boring questions that that I pose, not nearly as as interesting to, to Daniel Torday or his own exquisite feelings. Right, if he's... If this guy has a long track record in matters of public safety, right? if he's done the work, he has an impressive track record, then this is useful shorthand. But there's nothing in this article that shows that he has any expertise in this area. Oh, so I've long been ambivalent about the effects of active shooter drills and of increasing security at housing of worship. Guess what? Common sense says that increasing security is going to make people in those institutions safer. It's not terribly complicated. This training, right, this, this one-off, you know, couple of hours training at his synagogue, he says, would give me a chance to figure out what and why. Why? One two-hour session of training with active shooter training, all right, that's going to help you figure out what? Whether this is useful for the community? No, he's going to help him figure out his feelings, his feelings, right? We're in the midst of this giant crime wave in America. We're in the midst of this giant murder wave in America. This guy's primary concern is how he feels about increasing security for his extended family. This is a guy who feels ambivalent and, frankly, negative towards increasing security for his own extended family. So I went. I arrived late. What would we do? What, period, would, period, we, period, do? I do not come to this building often, not even for worship. Right. This guy hardly ever goes to synagogue, but he, he wants to show up for active shooter training so he can get more specificity with regarding with regard to his feelings. 
I learned, oh, so how long does it take for a city police department to arrive at the scene of an active shooter? The chief gave an answer three to five minutes. I could not hear it, he says. My ears were filled with a roaring, as though I'd stuffed them with styrofoam, imagining myself in that room as a shooter patrolled the hallways. So his article on this is all about how he feels about the possibility of a mass shooter in the synagogue that he very rarely attends. I learned once I was able to tune back in. So after he was emotionally flooded, all right, so we get all this exquisite narration of his tender, delicate feelings. So I learned some useful tips for how to stay alive for five minutes in a sanctuary intended for prayer. But he's ambivalent, if not downright negative, towards learning tips to stay alive. He's downright ambivalent, if not negative, towards his extended family learning tips to stay alive. All right. Other people staying alive is of tiny, 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 tiny interest to this guy compared to his feelings. Right? Dozens of people, you know, might be after stay alive through various security measures, but that doesn't interest him when compared to the enormous significance of his feelings about taking basic security measures to help dozens and hundreds of thousands of people stay alive. Later, we would feel some satisfaction about how we're all now, in a way, T-cells protecting the congregation. So it's all about his satisfaction his exquisite feelings. It's not about actually becoming more, more useful and protecting lives. It's all about how he feels about it. I found myself avoiding eye contact with other congregants. Yes, that's what I would really want to know when it comes to important matters of, of public safety, right? What's your level of eye contact with other people at a training? I was anxious. He was anxious, all right? He's not keeping his eye on the prize of keeping people safe. He's keeping his eye on the prize of monitoring his own feelings. How on earth did we get here? Well, as America has become a far more violent place since the explosion of the terrorist group Black Lives Matter in 2014, right? surprisingly, Jews are not exempt from the explosion of violence that has accompanied the public social triumph of the terrorist group Black Lives Matter. What is the value of imagining the unimaginable? Well, either you usefully imagine the unimaginable and save thousands, tens of thousands, millions of lives, or you don't. It doesn't seem that complicated to me. If imagining the unimaginable puts you in a better position to save one life, a dozen lives, five million lives, to me it's just obviously worth it, and my own feelings just don't really enter into it. How on earth does this guy think that his own feelings are the most important issue here when we could be talking about, you know, public safety measures that, that save tens of thousands of lives. But what are tens of thousands of other people's lives compared to this guy's exquisite feelings, right? For this creative writing teacher, his exquisite feelings are of infinitely greater importance than the lives of tens of thousands of innocent people. What is the value of trying to game out our actions for a terror that may never arrive? I mean, just imagine if we, if people in charge of the public good and public safety thought this way, right? If we didn't take measures to protect our society, our community, our institutions, our family, 
all right, against things that may never arrive, right, we would be far more vulnerable and far more innocent people would die. But what's the death of millions of innocent people compared to this creative writing writer's you know, exquisite feelings, right? Millions of innocent lives just don't matter to this guy compared to his feelings. It, it reminds me of this bloke who is in charge of the uh, conservative Judaism rabbinic seminary in Los Angeles. And he talks about how he stopped putting on tefillin for years because God didn't protect Jews in the Holocaust. So hundreds of millions of non-Jews throughout history are slaughtered. And this rabbi was very happy to continue putting on tefillin. But a few million Jews die in World War II, and oh, how can God allow this? So he has no problem. This rabbi has no problem with God allowing the slaughter of hundreds of millions of non-Jews. Ah, but when it comes to Jews, then, then his, his faith, faith is, is rocked. I thought of raising my hand, of asking these questions. Yeah, just imagine you, you raise your hand during a public safety drill. What is the value of trying to game out our actions for terrors that may never arrive? I mean, Daniel Torday, why do you have car insurance? Why do you have health insurance? Why do you have homeowner's insurance? Why do normal, responsible adults take out insurance when the odds are they'll never use it, right? When, when terrors for which the insurance is going to protect them may never arrive. Right? A normal, healthy adult living in reality it recognizes that it is part of your responsibility as an adult to prepare for terrors that probably will not arrive. Being in a room full of older Jews, I am surrounded by hand raisers. Oh, so if you're in a room of younger Jews, or if you're in a room of uh, non-Jews, you, you wouldn't be surrounded by uh, hand raisers? Single inquiry, should we have an armed guard at the door? And uh, he says that uh, the organizers push back, that it wouldn't really you know, be, be that helpful. What does common sense suggest, right? Is, is an institution, an extended family, a community better off with an armed guard or not, right? How many attacks on institutions are deterred by the simple presence of an armed guard? I mean, the, this guy thinks it, uh, it, it makes no sense to have an armed guard, that no one's any safer with an armed guard out, out front. I mean, this is how detached from reality, and he gets to be this detached from reality because he's very smart. He gets to live in an abstract world where he does exciting, interesting things, and I'm sure he makes you know, many major contributions to our society, but there is a problem with living much of your life in an abstract world, you get detached from reality. And when you become so detached from reality as he is, you end up you know, publishing absolutely ludicrous sentiments. So apparently because even trained active duty police officers hit what they shoot less than 20% of the time, that means that having an armed guard outside of the synagogue is of no use. The primary purpose of having an armed guard outside of a synagogue, outside of a church, outside of a bank, is not to shoot bad guys. It is that their simple presence will deter bad guys. Will it deter bad guys 100%? No. There's nothing we can do that would deter bad guys in all circumstances 100%. 
but it acts as a significant deterrent. Other questions wrestled with the ethical quandaries we could find ourselves in. All I could think was, there are books full of 6,000 years of wisdom in this very building. Really? Right? So if you go back the furthest in history that you can plausibly argue that, that, that a historical Abraham lived, all right, that's 4,000 years. All right, this guy is so ignorant about the Jewish tradition and the sacred texts of his own tradition that he thinks that uh, the Torah is filled with 6,000 years of, of wisdom. Okay, and then he quotes various psalms about uh, making supplications to the deity. It's God who's going to keep us safe, right? This guy wants to rely on divine intervention. He wants to rely on a miracle. He wants to rely on wish fulfillment. All right, how do people like this get to live in an abstract world? Because they're in the United States of America, which is a pretty well-run society, with compared to other countries, generally, you know, effective law enforcement, effective, you know, judicial processes. If he lived in Israel, he wouldn't get to, you know, hang out in this absurd, you know, abstract world, completely divorced from reality. Oh, he gets to talk to us about stochastic terrorism that we all face. Great cliches. Inside a Jewish place of worship, there is a threat of anti-Semitism. Yeah, Jews aren't immune from the explosion of violence in the United States of America. Oh, he doesn't like that uh, you need a key to enter his synagogue. Be why doesn't he like the key? Because it reminds him of the threats that we face. So does he use a key and a lock for his own home? He has no problem with a key and a lock for his own home. But a key and a lock to protect other people you know, beyond himself, he finds very troubling, right? He doesn't sweat looking after himself. But following the same processes to protect other people, he finds that troubling, right? Doing for other people the very thing that he does for himself, he finds troubling. Protecting himself, he finds not at all troubling, right? Using the same thing, a key and a lock to protect other people, he finds that troubling, Oh, the active shooter training deepened his discomfort. Poor dear. I left wondering if a sacred space given over to a training where we repeatedly imagine a violent attack taking place there had been diminished by the deed. So he feels like reality you know, diminishes the sacred, that reality diminishes community, that uh, an experience of reality diminishes the synagogue experience. Well, guess what? The synagogue, Judaism, Judaism's conceptions of God, the Torah, Jewish observance, all take place within the realm of reality, right? From the Jewish perspective, God entered into history, God entered into reality, right? This idea that Judaism should be a place divorced from reality, separate from reality, it's a very un-Jewish perspective. What I know is that the synagogue I attend is a thoughtful and warm place, right? One that he rarely attends, right? And despite having a key and a lock, it's an open one, right? So all sorts of places that uh, pride themselves on being open will usually just take one or two attacks and they're going to stop priding themselves on being open. Open is a wonderful quality when it is appropriate, but when it's just leaving you wide open to get slaughtered, right? Being open is stupid. 
It is divorced from reality. It is self-destructive. It is cruel. It is callous. It shows you know, disregard for the lives of innocent people. And he goes on and on about his central nervous system and uh, it's buzzing and his head is stuffed with styrofoam. He comes back again and again to the idea of having an armed guard at the synagogue. All right, to me, it's simple. Does an armed guard at an institution make it you know, more or less safe? Right? Generally speaking, common sense suggests to me that it makes it more safe. What do we lose when we close the door? All right, there is a loss when you close a door. There's a loss when you wear a seatbelt. For some people, there may be a loss when you undergo you know, various medical procedures that are you know, endorsed by medical authorities. Right? There is no action for which there is no loss. Right? By me speaking to you right now, I am losing the other things that I could be doing with this time and with this energy. Right? That's why the Torah talks about, I set you before this day, a choice between life and death. Right? There's never a choice that you can make that does not also entail loss. But this guy lives in this abstract, divorce-from-reality world where it's shocking and stunning and deeply upsetting and worrying and hurtful and anxiety-making for him to realize that every choice comes with loss. Uh, then he goes on and on. Uh, newly expansive view of the Second Amendment is trampling on the free speech clause of the First Amendment. H how exactly is that happening? I consider how gun rights are trampling on the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Really? Can people properly exercise their religious rights when they fear for their lives? Can people properly exercise any rights when they fear for their lives? That's why violent crime is the number one problem in the United States of America and the simple, easy proven solution to violent crime is to lock up people who commit violent crime for a long time. Such a simple solution would dramatically increase the quality of life in America and save tens of thousands of lives, but saving tens of thousands of innocent lives is just of so little consequence to this creative writing professor when compared to the exquisiteness of his own feelings. Ugh. Ugh. And I wanted to reach out to him. I wanted to have a dialogue. I wanted to talk to him. He doesn't want to hear from you, right? He provides no way to contact him, right? He, he is not at all inclined to hear from you. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. One thing we have learned after many years in the news business is that every once in a while you've got to eat some crow and admit that despite your best intentions, you were completely wrong about something. Tonight is one of those times. For nearly four years now, we've been under the impression, an impression we regularly communicated to you, our viewers, that actor Jesse Smollett was the greatest BS artist since Bill Clinton, that he was a transparent race, race hoaxer who fooled the dummies in the national media but could not fool us. That's what we thought. We thought Jesse Smollett was a liar. You remember his story. It did seem unlikely. Late one night in sub-zero temperatures, in a snowstorm, Jussie Smollett decided to venture out for a sandwich in downtown Chicago when he was, as people are, accosted by two physically enormous Trump supporters from Africa who somehow recognized him, despite his ski hat, from his part in a little-known musical drama series called Empire, because campy musical dramas are apparently huge with muscle-head Trump voters from Nigeria. So they knew him instantly, right away. 
These two crazed African right-wing maniacs also correctly guessed that Jesse Smollett had voted for Hillary Clinton, and they hated that. And so, as Trump voters so often do, they began pummeling him about the face and screaming, this is MAGA country! Because that's one of the things people typically say about downtown Chicago, it's MAGA country. Then, because they were still angry, they're always angry, these Nigerian racists poured bleach on Jesse Smollett, threw a noose around his neck, and then ran off into the... Okay, let's say Satnam and uh, greetings to the caller. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, blessings. Shalom. Shalom, Luke. Shalom, shalom. Satnam. Long time no Long time no talk. I was worried about you. Blessings, bro. Blessings. I wanted to call on yesterday, but you cut the stream short yesterday. You know, you got to do what you got to do. No big deal. At least we're together again. Ah, it feels good. It feels so good. Reunited and it feels so good. Did you hear me coming? <laughs> I did not, mercifully. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, did you, is this a plain flu or is this the cocoa? You know, you don't care. I don't know. I just uh, suddenly 11 a.m. Friday, the world just started spinning. I mean, it's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the, the spinning and the dizziness went away after an hour or two and just left me with, you know, some kind of garden variety three-day flu. Really? Spinning? So you had bent spins? And... All right. I'm sorry? Well, all right. Well, glad you're back. I don't want to, talk, I don't want to dwell on the past. Come yeah. On. I mean, I'm glad you're back. You know, being sick is terrible. I hate it myself. But luckily, you're among us. So... Uh, you're really, uh, you're really amped up about this guy, but um, we can talk about him if you'd like, because I do have something. But I want to backtrack and go to yesterday, if I could. Please. Uh, so you were, was that a New York Times article that you were voice reading? Um, when? Yesterday. 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 Um, you know, it was a kind, it's just kind of classic sort of boilerplate woke piece about. Yeah, George Floyd being killed by Derek oh, Chauvin. Oh, yeah, that was a New York Times article inside the Louisville Police Department. Right. Okay, so my question was, do you think this person really believes what he, I don't know, was it he or she was saying, or do you think that they're just sort of enacting some sort of collective fiction that just sort of like an empty ritual? You know, I just, there were just so many moments in that where it, it just seemed so insincere. I've got a great you, answer. You know what I'm saying? I've got, I've got a great answer for you. Most of what we think we're thinking, all right, and most of what we think we're saying, we're not thinking and saying. We are just simply receiving it from outside ourselves, from, from our community, and then repeating it. So... You know, the, the the person writing that article, you know, belonged to a certain social group, just like you and you and I, we, we belong to certain social groups, but uh, almost nothing that we think is really unique to us. We are, we are taking what's being transmitted to us and then repeating it and thinking that, it, you know, we're developing it in our own heads when really we're being fed it by our social circle. Exactly. Yeah, you put it much better than I could have. Um... That was, the, I mean, when you did that, when you read that article, I really got the sense that there was, those words were so hollow and so insincere and just so uh, performative, right? So, yeah. you know, it was like a ritual that was being enacted and it just 
it struck so hollow, especially when I hear stuff about George Floyd and this like how tenaciously people hold to this victim narrative or this fucking excuse my language loser. Um, I don't know. It felt like a little. Um, but I do wonder about the intentionality because I do see this behavior on social media where people just sort of kind of just lay out that sort of uh, zeitgeist thoughts, woke thoughts and feelings of the day, just to know, just so that I can know that they, that they feel this way. Right. And, it, it, and there's just so no depth behind it. And it's not really open for questioning. It's just sort of this empty ritual that, that f- people feel like they must engage in. And that's what that article felt like to me. Yeah, but we're not exempt from this. We do the same thing. We just don't realize that we're, we're, we're doing it. We re- recapitulate what our social circle is telling us because it, you know, forms the reality of, of the world as we experience it. Okay, but all right. So let's let's move forward to today, right? To your critique of this person whose whose article is so fatuous and so stupid, and I cannot believe it's in the Atlantic. But you say it is, so I take your word for it. Um, who? I mean, the question you ask is exactly right. Who cares? When did some individual's feelings? become worthy of a publication like the Atlantic. I mean, what does that say about the Atlantic? Like, well, isn't I, I it think, ready for yeah. the scrappy? Yeah, uh, I mean, no, just, but, I mean, there are times when someone's feelings, you know, well, it's, it's almost never are someone's feelings important, but you occasionally have such a great writer that their feelings w- will become compelling. You know, a great stand-up mm-hmm. comic. Or, you know, a great performer, a great writer, they can make their, their feelings compelling, but someone's feelings virtually never have any wider significance. Yeah. Okay. So I want to I take that point and then jump into a point about what that means for someone like me or someone why I just don't socialize as much as I do, which is almost never because... That is the caliber and the quality of conversation that I encounter all of the time and that I have no patience for. And I have no, I have no, no appetite for, no engagement with it. Because when I, when I try to engage with something like that, I, I get blank stares. You know, I try to, I don't know, if I, if people don't want to hear contrary notes at all whatsoever. Right. They just kind of want to be affirmed in all cases at all times. And uh, no one wants to hear like the, the, the sort of vigorous back and forth of a, of a genuine disagreement. It's just a matter for historians. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, is that your experience? No, because it's not true in my social circles. I only open up and talk to, to people generally speaking, if there can be a vigorous back and forth beyond, you know, what, beyond the, the social conventions. Obviously, there are plenty of times and places in life where, you know, you're stuck on a plane with someone, you're stuck on a bus with, with someone, you're in a workplace where it's not appropriate to, you know, give full vent to, to what you're thinking. But when I'm having genuine social intercourse, I only have social intercourse 
with people who are worthy. You know, I don't do it with people who are infected with, you know, all sorts of nasty lesions and disgusting diseases. You know, I only have vigorous thrusting back and forth social intercourse, you know, with healthy you know, you know, red blooded, you know, viral and viral. Uh, fertile and, uh, you know, life giving potential. Not, yeah, I'm not just sticking my opinions in like some filthy hole, right? I, I'm not no, just like inserting myself into, you know, some di- disease ridden orifice. I mean, I am, I don't insist that the other person just be a passive recipient for what I have to give. I am, when I thrust, you know, I'm fine with their back arching to receive me. <laughs> That's what I thought, Luke. And I, you're, 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 you're much the better for it. Um, sorry, I'm doing a bunch of chores as we're speaking. I don't mean to be respect, disrespectful. Um, <clears throat> okay. Oh, dear. But, but, uh, but oh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to add is that uh, for many years, my, my primary social circle were other writers. And in that, in that setting, all right, you could have, you know, pretty vigorous back and forth, even if, you know, most people are on, on the left. Uh, when, when my primary social circle was writers, it was an intellectual feast. Yes, I can imagine. I can imagine. That's the gift of high IQ companionship. That, you know, you can have a vigorous disagreement and, and, and have fun with it, you know. Um, that's something that, I could do on the East Coast and I can't do on the West Coast. I don't know. But you're you're in a different situations. So I you know, I respect that. <clears throat> um pardon the pause. <laughs> when did when did you last get to have this kind of vigorous thrusting back and forth, you know, a, a type of social intercourse that was rigorous and vigorous and and mutual? <laughs> <laughs> too long bro probably since before you were ill you know bro Honestly. that's so sad i mean it's we long, it's so badly trap. need to be giving each other like intellectual reach arounds <laughs> well played well played i did have a third point and i'm just scan i'm i'm scanning my brain and i've misplaced it so um oh okay so how do I phrase this? So, so, you know, I'm doing this book business thing, right? Yes. And I've sort of vaguely semi-employed this character much younger than me to do some grunt work, right? Male or female? And male. Okay. And I, I get this, you know, he's like always angling to get the better of me, you know? Mm-hmm. to get paid for something he didn't really deserve. You know, mm-hmm. he's just always subtly, I mean, you know, just angling and trying to sort of manipulate the situation so that he gets the better of me, you know? And I just find myself feeling defensive, you know, and not enjoying the experience. And it, it made me remind, it made me think about myself as an employee Yes. Like the times I had done that, right? And what a burden a bad employee can actually be in a way yeah. that the bad employee has no idea, has no comprehension of. You know, so I, I sort of, when I, when I get in these situations, I sort of turn these situations 
back in on themselves and make me introspect about them. Like, what is the lesson that I need to learn here? Yes. And I thought, I think that uh, you might resonate with some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I like, like most people, if, if I can, if I can go through an average day, just being 90% selfish, I am damn proud of myself because apparently the human average is 95% selfishness. So I aim yeah. for a ninety percent selfish day. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. lofty, lofty expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you I know mean, what? Go ahead. Well, I'm trying to like parse the whole situation because I can, you know, he, this kid is young. He's 22 years old, right? And I know what it's. You know, I'm trying to put myself in sho his shoes. Look at how he sees the world and. Like, uh, I, I mean, I feel like I'm incredibly generous with this, with this kid, you know, incredibly like I always break in his favor just because, um, you know, someone of his age needs a leg up, but even that's not enough. He's got to find that extra thing, you know, and there's no recognition or no cognizance of the generation, the generosity that I'm affording him. And it's sort of, this, you know, it's happened once, twice, third, fourth, fifth time, you know. And finally, it's just bred this contempt in me for this kid. And yeah. I just want him dead. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I, it's like the generation you should, I guess if you don't reciprocate someone's generosity, it sort of immediately turns into contempt. On yes. the other end. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? Yes, like, yeah. I mean, I will, like, uh, there was there was someone that I was, you know, connecting with on a regular basis, so I extended myself once, twice. Uh, he turned me down both times, and I, I never extended myself again. Uh, I once, you know, bought a woman flowers who, who I was dating, and she said something that was kind of dismissive of the flowers that I bought her. I never again bought her flowers. So right. if we ever extend ourselves or we just make a bid, right? I like call, you know, I'm acquainted with a lot of people from the show and there are some people I've called them once, twice, even like Babylon, Babylonian Hebrew. I, I believe I have called him three times in the past uh, two years, a total of three times. He's never called me back. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to call him again. So yeah. Usually a normal person extends themselves, you know, twice and then they're done. Yeah. And so right now I'm at the point where I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I like separate myself from this guy completely. Right. But, you know, I have some self selfish motive for keeping him around. At the same time, it's sort of offset by the sort of, fact that i know i'm being taken advantage of in other respects and i'm like trying to do this calculus and um it just it just i'm trying to make a larger point beyond my own experience but well isn't this just like, part of the, the human condition we're all trying to get most of the time 95 percent of the time we're trying to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible Right. And I've been very cognizant of that. Right. And that's what sort of makes me ambivalent. And what I thought was, you know, naively, 
is that if I try to interrupt that cycle where I sort of extend myself a little bit further than I should, that that extension would be acknowledged and then reciprocated at least at some basic level, right? And this is not human nature. And now you're like, I understand why hierarchy exists and why why the world is cold, or at least why the work world is very cold and uh, draconian in its rewards and punishments. And this sort of thing happens to you again and again and again because you are far more empathic than 95% of people I know, and you probably get taken advantage of more than 90% of people I know. That's, that's probably true, Luke. Well, but the thing is, is that's like, I feel like that's the spiritual path I'm walking, which is I have to reverse the course of the Nile. I have to re record, reverse the course of human nature if I'm going to experience the transcendent, right? I have to get beyond the, I have to basically pay back all the misdeeds I've done, right? If I want to cash in and, and then, you know, be beyond the material realm and really taste the spiritual realm. So I just see this as, I know I'm doing this when I'm doing it, and then I'm still surprised when the world doesn't reciprocate. I, think, you know, I, I, want, I want my cake and I want to eat it too, Luke. Yeah, you have this noble vision, but th there seem to be these repeated examples of how it's not working out like it's good to do noble things like i volunteer probably on average 10 to 15 hours a week and i feel yeah. righteous I, I feel good about it and it, it works for me so when you volunteer help out give back you know take the, the noble path it should be consistently helping you feel good and i'm not sensing that but I try to blend the two. That's the problem. When I'm act, so you have to sort of act in the world as an economic agent, meaning you have to be very self-interested, right? Yeah. But then <clears throat> to grow spiritually, you sort of have to act selflessly, right? You have to sort of get beyond yourself and your sort of <clears throat> immediate economic needs. You have to sort of embrace a larger vision for lack of a better phrase right it has to be appropriate there's all sorts of selflessness and embracing a larger vision which is just self-destructive suicidal antisocial. it has to be accurately gauged i mean you can't just take that being selfless is not inherently a good thing like being being selfless frequently uh, leaves you, you know, wide open for abuse, which then makes you less capable of taking care of yourself and putting yourself in a position to be a benefit to the the people that you love. So sometimes, you know, self selflessness is good, and sometimes selflessness is is bad. It has to be accurately chosen, just like honesty. You know, there's a time and a place for honesty, and uh, there's a time and a place for discretion. Yeah, 
Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Um, like if you gave money well, to, needle, you know, homeless winos. Go ahead. Well, I'm saying this is a needle I'm trying to thread, right? And then, and conversely, let's talk about winos. You know, I'm here in San Francisco, et cetera. And, you know, the vagrancy and the drug addiction and the crime and the petty crime and the not petty crime is always on the increase. And, you know, I, I you know, I'm a member of Nextdoor and I try to, uh, you know, I, I try to express some Luke Fordian opinions about how to deal with criminals. And the, I get blowback uh, saying that I'm not compassionate. Yeah, right. I mean, that's not the forum to, to do that. You have to choose the appropriate forum. That's not the forum. I mean, that's just self-destructive. Well, next door is the people that I live there, my actual neighbors, are the people in my community. Right, and so they're, they're, they're the least, they're the people you least really want to offend because if there's some major earthquake, you know, your life may Wait, very I don't well. feel like I'm trying to... Sorry, Luke. Your life may like very well depend them. on getting along with your neighbors. And if it's needless, it is gratuitous for you to be offending them. Like I would never Look, post Luke Fordian op Luke. opinions on next door. I believe me, they're well attenuated and well diluted and well tempered. Right. So I don't go into it trying to antagonize them. I feel like I'm going in there just trying to just, you know, plainly state some facts and some plainly state some rather non-rosy versions of humanity that my next door uh, co colleagues don't really embrace. I'm not trying to troll them. I'm trying to tell the truth. And I feel that's the most quote unquote compassionate thing to do. Yeah, but it's, it doesn't work, and it's delusional. Your your motives don't matter. What 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 matters is the reality of what's going on, and the reality of what's going on is that you are not enjoying the experience, and many of the people who are reading you are not enjoying the experience, and you're getting distanced, I would assume, from many of your neighbors. So whatever your intentions, it doesn't sound like it's working out. Your feelings and intentions don't matter here. What matters is the upshot of what you're doing. Right. Okay, so you're saying just don't engage in like next door at all ever? No, don't say anything that there's a there's a reasonable uh percentage of a chance that it will alienate you from neighbors. Don't do it. Like I in, in a in, I don't you know, I don't say things that would just you know, have a much higher chance of of doing my well-being harm than doing my well-being good. Uh, gratuitously you well know, have to be my something... well-being my, my well is not of consequence here the, the consequence the matter at hand similar to the story you just illustrated earlier about the preparedness training is the safety of the community and if, if the safety of the community depends on there being a change the way we view law and order i feel it's moral and responsible and noble to express that right i'm saying the only thing i said by the way i'm not saying any base and red belt takes i'm simply 
we have law. This is literally what I said. We have laws on the books about this, and we should enforce them if we want the problem to go away, right? Mm-hmm. Then I get hit big with all this kind of housewife kind of crap, like, oh, these people have had hard lives, and et cetera, et cetera. We gotta, we gotta understand them, et cetera. You know that kind of stuff. And I'm, you know, and then, then I come back at her, you know, about that's not going to have any practical effect about the about the complaint that you are particularly, uh, you know, complaining about. And then she's like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> Just cuts off conversation. <laughs> Where I felt like I, I was respectful. I had no personal, you know, animus towards her. I just simply expressed what I just expressed. And her impulse was to just immediately cease conversation. So the question is, so the problem is, these people live in a frame in which, you know, nobody can argue against compassion, right? Compassion is like a winner. It's like 100%. Who's not in favor of compassion? So but compassion can mean anything. And what compassion means in San Francisco is let derelicts destroy everything that they want to and not complain about it. That's what it comes to mean. Yeah, yeah, it uh, sounds very frustrating. I mean, uh, I, I'd, I'd love to see you in a neighborhood watch type of situation where you're, you know, you're with, you know, masculine, manly men who want to make a, a safer community and or down with, you know, expressing vigorous social intercourse. Yes. <laughs> yes. San Francisco is desperately needed a very vigorous. Yeah, social men process. who aren't afraid yeah. of vigorous social intercourse with other blokes. That's what that's what I want for you. That's right, bro. Well, I, all right. So put it this way. Okay. So also, so we're, we're changing tracks slightly. So I um. I started volunteering, Luke. Excellent. At a at a library sale. So, like the friend, every library has a friends of the library organization. Now, yes. this isn't completely altruistic. I got to say, right up front, you know, it all feeds into my little book side business that I'm doing, right? Yeah. But um, it's very funny. Like, uh, I'm, I'm meeting people I would never meet in real life. Like, old Great. people, Luke. Great. Like, old people with, like, fucking snaggletooth and just, just old people problems. <laughs> and, but what I was, so I'm interacting with, like, four or five other old people, right? And, and today, like, Scott Adams came up. Yes. You know? And they're like... Uh, um, they're of course immediately and totally anti Scott Adams, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm naturally on the other side. I'm in a strange way pro Scott Adams in this situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I could have engaged, I could have like sparked up conversation, but I didn't. I didn't look. I just said, I'm here to perform a service, right? I'm That's not here it. to fight with old people, you know? I'm not here. But I did want to hear what they had to say. And it's just very, the unanimity um, of the uh, anti-Scott Adams perspective 
it was a little bit staggering for me. It was, it was hard for me to ingest, but I ingested it. Um, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, hey, it's very funny. So you have yet to you've yet to opine. At least I haven't seen you on the whole Scott on situation. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, if you call you know black people by virtue of being black members of a hate group, I think that's inaccurate and ill-advised. And there, there was a time, there was a time in 2015, sometime in 2016, and there were even, you know, occasional times in between that, like 2020, where, where Scott Adams had a lot of interesting things to say, but he just has so many stupid things to say, and, and saying that by virtue of being black, you're, you know, a member of a hate group, I think is a stupid thing to say. I agree. I think that was a, a bit clumsily articulated, but it does sort of point to all the points that you point to, right? Yes. Not? Yes, it, it does. It's just, it's just, you know, it lacks my, my sophistication. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Now, do you think these ideas that are ideas that Scott has had for a long time, which, you know, was just sitting on, or yeah, really yeah, yeah. Like the more you speak publicly, like the harder it is to, you know, keep these things down that are trying to get out. Yeah, because it definitely boosted his public profile, but it came at the expense of his income, really, and his it, social status, and, his and, social and status. just almost any position in polite society. So why now? Did, I mean, it just seemed, you know, I basically disengaged from from Scott uh, Scott Adams after the 2020 election. Um, do you think that it's like an e-personality thing figuring into this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's very hard to be, you know, constantly saying things online and not, you know, be drawn into antisocial things because the more shocking the things you say the more intense the reaction and if you know intense reactions to what you say makes you feel alive particularly i mean his wife left him a few months ago i believe so mm -hmm. you know he probably felt you know alive when he was having sex with her and having a you know a vigorous not just social intercourse vigorous with her exchange, but but you know, sexual and interpersonal and spiritual intercourse with her, right? That that probably make him feel alive, but uh, he doesn't have that now. So it's really, 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 really tempting to try to fill the emptiness in your soul by getting intense reactions online. <laughs> we all think intensity, one way or another. Uh, yes, we want yeah. to feel alive. We want to feel something, bro. We have want you bigger. Opined on this because it did seem to be like. It's a pretty major story, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess I kind of washed my hands with Scott Adams, you know, about the same time that you did. So it, it, it would be like opining on, you know, another stupid thing that Richard Spencer has said. So this didn't pull you back in? Because, I mean, it almost has, no, I mean, it's on my sort of normie websites, this particular story. Because the story, you know, the, the the current media's um, characterization is is all woke, right? Scott Adams is the devil, and mm -hmm. 
I don't believe that's your opinion. No, no. Yeah. No, I, I mean. So the question is, is like, can this ever be discussed? Like you try to discuss it, but your, you know, your reach is not necessarily monumental. You know, that is true. <laughs> all respect. So, so the question is, is like, Scott Adams for some reason put his head above the parapet. You know, <laughs> it's blown off. Uh, but what will it take? You know, do things have to get really bad? I mean, <sighs> I I think Scott Adams was sharing valuable insights. I mean, if you want valuable insights in these type of areas, then the person who has the most popular success in this area is Tucker Carlson, and the person who consistently has the most intellectually important things to say is Steve Saylor. True, true. But does the fact that Scott Adams um, decided to, quote-unquote, go public, you know, for lack of a better phrase, which things I think he's harbored for at least several years, right? He just found an opportune moment to, you know, go public, you know, is this a watershed event of any sort? Do you think, like, I mean, people aren't stupid, right? Like, people, they're more red-pilled than you think. They act, they don't, they may speak blue pill, but they definitely act red pill. They choose where to live very carefully, right? Right. Most pe- people who, with the means to do so, make their they raise their kids in a way that they feel is the most safe for lack of a better and themselves and themselves yes but even more so their kids Mm -hmm. i truly believe you know i grew up in the country as i've talked to you um i've mentioned to you many times and i fully believe that my parents did that they made that choice i mean i was I was born in like Western Connecticut outside of New York city. But I think my parents took the temperature and they said, let's move to the country, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, and they would never admit to having done so. I think it would be, it was sort of, sort of unconscious, this decision. Cause they would sort of event, they would sort of, they would sort of evince the same sort of woke quote unquote ideas in my childhood as that we hear now, not, not nearly as, you know, drastic as we hear today. But at the end of the day, their decision to move to the country was just to get away from woke. Yeah. And do you know that there are men out there who say things to women and do things for women with the primary motivation of getting women into bed? No way. Are you yeah, bro. Me? No. And, <laughs> and there are women who are going to bed with guys and their primary motivation is not their own sexual pleasure. They're just trying to hook the guy and get him, you know, hooked so that he will protect and provide for her for a lifetime. And in exchange, she's trying to hook him with great sex. No way. Yeah. Do you have any studies to support this conclusion, Luke? Yeah, they're peer reviewed, bro. Are they? Who are the peers, my dude? Um Scott Adams, uh <laughs> Chateau Hartiste. Okay, okay, okay. 
All right. Well, on that note, I think I've exhausted my uh, contribution. I got, I got one thing for you. So, okay. do you remember COVID? Yes. Vaguely. And yes. and perhaps my most common reaction to to skeptics of the conventional wisdom, my most common reaction was, well, where's the meta-analysis supporting what you're saying? And we now yes. have the the biggest, most comprehensive meta-analysis of the effectiveness of face masks for mm -hmm. reducing influenza spread. And mm -hmm. according to the, you know, the most comprehensive study of this kind, it does absolutely nothing. No way! Yeah, pretty shocking. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm perfectly uh, willing to have bygones be bygones in the COVID era. It now just it actually seems like a distant memory to me. And uh, I don't necessarily want to sort of reanimate those arguments, but something went wrong with the whole COVID thing. Let's just suffice, let's just agree to on that point. And someday we'll know when the data's in, we'll be able to discuss it coolly and rationally without any sort of Like, personal... I got strikes. I got strikes, my bro, for saying that I didn't think that uh, wearing a face mask, you know, outside was uh, particularly important, that it, it, that it seemed a little silly to me. I, I got, you like, I got YouTube strikes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, YouTube at one point was giving strikes, I believe, for, for saying that the origins of COVID were, were lab leak. So all sorts of things that used to get you a strike on YouTube, right, have, you know, proven themselves to be true. So YouTube in specific and social media in general have prevented us from having the kind of hearty, vigorous social intercourse that we should be having over things like uh, face masks and, you know, public health measures. Luke, I look forward to someday having some hearty, vigorous intercourse with you. Social intercourse, no my friend. Yes. No, so, no, so, no, we, we, no homo, bro. No, we, I, I don't think someone, an NBA player got fined $50,000 for saying no homo. So I think we have to say no Romeo. Okay, bro. No Romeo. No Romeo, bro. All right. Shalom. Shalom. Blessings. Blessings. Right. Blessings. The night howling with demented glee. Here's how Jesse Smollett described it. When I see the uh, attacker uh, masked, and he said, this MAGA country punches me right in the face. I was just jumped. And I, then I look down and I see that there's a rope around my neck. Yeah. We're going to be honest with you. We had some questions about that story. It just didn't sound right to us. Something was off. Crazed Nigerian Trump voters assaulting liberals in downtown Chicago? How common is this? Chicago has 50 aldermen and not a single one of them is a Republican. Chicago has not had a Republican mayor in 80 years. Donald Trump got 12% of the vote in Chicago. It didn't really seem like MAGA country. But boy, were we wrong. Not only is Chicago a right-wing Donald Trump stronghold, last night the QAnon army came for Lori Lightfoot. Lightfoot, of course, is the mayor of Chicago and a consummate neoliberal. She's the one who prevented Chicago cops from chasing criminals on foot because chasing criminals is racist. She's the mayor who plunged Chicago even further, in, further into debt for a good cause to pay for the 
Department of Climate and Environmental Equity. <laughs> and in fact, Lightfoot's commitment to equity was so profound that she banned white reporters from talking to her. She took down not one, but two statues of Christopher Columbus, who was a racist. So you would think if anybody would be safe in Chicago, which is roughly 100% Democratic Party voters, it would be Lori Lightfoot. Oh, but no. According to Lori Lightfoot, the extreme MAGA Republicans, the ones who tried to bleach Jussie Smollett, activated their sleeper cells around the city, and they showed up at the polls en masse, which means lots of them at once. And the effect was to make Lori Lightfoot the first Chicago mayor in 40 years to lose re-election. As Lightfoot put it last night at her non-victory party, these MAGA Republicans hated her, not because of what she did, but because of who she is. Asked directly whether her defeat in the Democratic primary had been unfair, Lightfoot answered this way, quote, I'm a black woman in America. Of course. Now, one of the many tragedies here, and there are so many layers of tragedy, is that Lori Lightfoot, insightful as she's always been, saw this racist insurgency coming for years. Here she was in 2021. Mayor, in recent months, uh, there have been questions raised about your, your temperament and uh, your reaction to criticism. Uh, Tribune editorial used the term irascible. Uh, how much of this do you think might have to do with the fact that you're a woman and specifically a black woman? About 99 percent of it. Yeah, because the thing is, there are no women in Chicago. It's an entirely male and right wing city. And so all opposition to Lori Lightfoot derived from her race and gender. It's not that people were angry about violent crime in Chicago. That Oi, awful, awful racist. All right, let's get back to this New York Times article on inside the Louisville Police Department where officers are reckoning with what it means to be a cop in a city that doesn't trust them. Now it would warrant that much of the city does basically trust cops and Significant portion of the city does not, but this reflects two very different demographics. He finished a slice of leftover pizza, kissed his wife and kids goodbye, and climbed into his black Ford Explorer. He was headed to the scene of the city's 15th homicide of 2023. This one was in the 5th Division, an area with affluent neighborhoods east of downtown. There would probably be reporters here, which irritated Burbrink, because that didn't happen in the city's poorer West End where his detectives spent most of their time, as black men died by the dozens. Okay, so communities where people don't respect life, right? And there are mass murders in communities where people don't respect life. Right? It's not going to command as much attention as uh, communities that value and respect life. So it doesn't irritate me. Burbrink, a white 43-year-old former Marine, has spent the past couple of years traveling the city at all hours, called to a new homicide scene about every two days. He shows up in his camel hair coat, a Diet Mountain Dew in his hand. Okay, so the reason that uh, black areas in St. Louis have you know, huge amounts of murders is not because of racist police, right? Th these are problems within these particular communities. It's not the police's fault. He's been a cop for 21 years, following the path of his father, a cop for 40. Burbrink supervises four sergeants and 16 detectives working new murder cases in a cubicle-filled space they call the dungeon. As the number of annual homicides started spiking, people wanted to know why. Burbrink would tell them he didn't have a clue. If pressed, he would suggest the perfect storm of 2020, 
a global pandemic, historic social unrest, and a dramatic retreat by America's police officers. Burbrink keeps hearing people talk about the need for the police to rebuild trust, but he doesn't like that word because it assumes it was once there and then lost. Normal people, by and large, have a fair amount of trust for, for police. They don't think that they're perfect. They don't think that they should be above criticism. But normal people recognize that that thin blue line is what you know separates us from horror and mass death and destruction. Two decades of policing, there has always been a lack of trust between the police and black communities in Louisville, Baltimore. Oh, guess what? There's a lack of trust between many non-black and black communities, right? This isn't something that's unique to the black community and cops, right? This is something that's going on between many black and non-black communities. It's not uh, unique to cops. New York and most every other part of urban America. You over-policed areas, saturated them with... Oh, these over-policed areas that have 10, 20, 50, 100 times the, the murder rate of other areas... They didn't really sound over-policed to me. Young officers trying to make stats, and you disrupted trust, Burbank told Oh, so just uh, trying to, you know, arrest people who are, you know, committing crimes. You're just trying to fluff up your, your stats, right? We take the super predators, we put them in prison for a long time, we will crush violent crime and dramatically increase the quality of life for ordinary Americans. Me? instead of us doing stuff early on to work with the community and fix problems. He added, the, the biggest problems in these communities are not the police, right? The police aren't even in the top five of problems, not even in the top 10 of problems. These communities' biggest problems are their own citizens and reckless disregard for life and for the law. You can't throw a net over an entire area and hope you catch that big fish every now and again. You just take super predators and you put them in prison for a long time and you solve the problem. Broad brush policing strategies, including an over-reliance on pretext stops, stop and frisk, and small-time drug arrests. Stop and frisk slashes violent crime rates. Stop and frisk saves hundreds of lives. Rests have fallen out of favor across the country for good reason, Burbank says. Now police commanders are struggling to figure out what to do instead. We have very simple police and law enforcement solutions to reduce violent crime and increase the quality of life. You arrest people who commit violent crime. You arrest people who commit crimes that are socially destructive and you throw them in prison and you keep them there for a long time. Okay, Mary Eberstadt talking in Australia how the West really lost At a time time. when the social costs for religious belief are rising and when some students faced with hostility abandon their faith not because they've thought through all the problems of theology, but simply because they are scared. In other words, build up the counterculture. Second, secularization continues to be driven by the fact that people are marrying later and having children later if they have children at all. The median age of marriage, by 2022, it is over 28 years of age for women, and for men, it is over 30 for the first time. This, too, interferes with the possibility of hearing the sacred. From time immemorial, Mothers and fathers have regarded the creation of new life as the zenith of their own lives as human beings. The human patrimony reflects this primordial fact. Our civilization's art and literature are unthinkable apart from elemental ties of family and children. But today, and especially since the sexual revolution, the very idea of children has been slowly but radically transformed. 
yesterday's blessing has become today's optional burden. A third force behind secularization remains as unavoidable as it was 10 years ago. Christian teaching is on a permanent collision course with the sexual revolution. In effect, we are running the experiment run in evangelized ancient Rome, only in reverse. Then Christianity spread with extraordinary speed. Now repaganization is doing the same. People choose what kind of sex life they want. If they want a monogamous sex life, a life built around family and children, then by and large they tend to be traditional and religious. If people want promiscuity, they tend to choose secularism. The non-marital lives made possible by today's technologies are drawing consumer-minded people out of the church and into the repaganizing culture. Consider a little statistical proof. <clears throat> In 2021, when polled about why they were leaving Catholicism, 64% of Italian respondents said that they disagreed with the church's position on social issues. Now, which issues do you suppose were objects of dispute here? Feeding the hungry? Caring for the poor? Or the rest of the social justice agenda to which Christians are ordered? <clears throat> no, of course not. Here, as elsewhere, social issues equals one cause only. Sexual expression unimpeded by a disapproving religious authority. We need to understand that fundamental point. It has both negative and positive implications. On the negative side, it means that Christianity faces an uphill climb of a kind that it never has before. And there is no end of the clever self-delusion in which men and women will indulge to convince themselves that the post-revolutionary order is the only legitimate order. They will be aided in that effort by others who long for the so-called culture wars to be over, who are tired of being told they are on the wrong side of history. And okay, so one problem with her analysis is she, she relies a great deal on what people say about themselves, whether or not they identify as Christian, whether or not they believe in God. Well, I could stand up here and say that uh, as, as each day goes by, I look more and more like Ellen DeGeneres, and this created a spiritual crisis in my soul, and now I realize that all my life I've really been a woman on the inside, and now I'm transitioning, and my truth is that I'm a woman. And just because I may say this and I may believe this, it doesn't make it true, right? Just because people say that they're religious Jews or serious Jews or Christians it doesn't make it true. Just because people say they believe in God doesn't mean that it makes any demonstrable difference in their life, right? So she places a great stock in what people say about themselves, whether or not they identify as believers in God or Christian or not. But the rhetoric people use and the form that they assume, you know, believer, non-believer, right? That's usually not nearly as important as the reality of someone's life, right? Nick Fuentes says he's a traditional Christian. He's a traditional Catholic, but there's almost nothing in the way he lives his life that, that resonates with traditional Christianity or traditional Catholicism, right? If I meet a, a pretty girl in the park and I pretend to be interested in astrology or crystals or, you know, all sorts of other nonsense, all right, just because I want to form some connection with the, with the pretty girl doesn't mean I have any real interest in astrology or, or crystals, right? Forms, rhetoric, you know, public affiliations, generally not nearly as important as the reality of someone's true intentions, the reality of someone's true commitments, the reality of someone's true interests. So have you guys seen, there's a great new Tom Hanks movie. What is it? Uh, I Am Otto. It's terrific. A Man Caught Otto, right? Otto is a grump who's given up on life following the loss of his wife. He wants to end it all. 
when a young family moves in nearby, he meets his match in a quick-witted Marisol. So she's from El Salvador and Mexico, and she's got, you know, vital, vibrant blood. And his old white blood is just dodgy, and he's a grump, and he wants to give up on life. But this wonderful El Salvadoran woman, you know, befriends him and, you know, helps him to completely turn his life around. And I think that's just a metaphor for America. You know, we're filled with this tired, you know, white blood. And there's a there's an adorable uh, smaller story in this movie about, you know, a female to male trans kid and, and how he's he's suffered. But uh, Otto's, you know, late wife, you know, you know, embrace this trans kid. Otto eventually learns to embrace this trans kid. This this movie is so heartwarming. It shows us the way forward for America. We need to, you know, embrace our El Salvadorans. I mean, don't we love our Salvadorans, folks? Our, our Mexicans. I mean, they're just filled with love and light and life and and vigor, and and their blood is just so vibrant. And it's a great. It's a heartwarming film. I I love this movie. Uh, a Man Called Otto. It reminds me of that uh, other wonderful Tom Hanks movie about the, you know, the uh, children TV host. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Ah, another, you know, Mr. Rogers. Tom Hanks plays uh, Mr. Rogers. So I get tired of just seeing this this brutal, dark, you know, entertainment Right, it's like much of the most highly praised movies and TV shows are just so dark, like uh, you know Breaking Bad, uh, The Sopranos, etc. I I enjoy a little light and love and uplift, and I strongly, strongly recognize uh, not just recognize but uh, advocate that you see Tom Hanks is a man called Otto. He's a grump who uh, turns his life around. It's a little bit like. Uh, the 2023 version of It's a Wonderful Life. And also A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Tom Hanks playing Fred Rogers, the creator and host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And who yearn to be liked in all the better places. And those others also include some within the churches. Understandable, though all the pressure for capitulation may be, it nevertheless defeats the purpose of human thriving. Animal science shows us that when other animals are radically separated from their families, they become dysfunctional. <clears throat> Famous experiments on deprivation among rhesus monkeys proved as much. Animals that can't not bond to one another and learn from one another become confused and enraged and destructive. And in fact, that's why there's rising awareness of animal welfare around the world, because science has demonstrated that non-human animals have fascinating, intricate societies of their own, particularly familial societies. We need to apply that kind of insight to Homo sapiens. For, for six decades now, humanity has been running a disruptive experiment on our own kind. We have absorbed messages inimical to our well-being, such as that families are problematic and negotiable, that having offspring either does not matter, or that reproduction may even be a bad thing, or that we should choose the people uh, who are nearest and dearest to us, the notion of chosen family is in vogue in the United States at least, just as we can choose to end the lives of our fetuses, our grandparents, and others who are smaller and weaker, if that is what we decide. These messages are not only potentially disastrous, they are disastrous in practice. Today's ongoing experiment in fractured non-family living has given rise to the crisis of loneliness that is omnipresent in the materially rich nations of the West. Pope Francis himself has drawn attention to this. It is surely behind the heavy use of psychotropic drugs for depression and many other ailments that are now at record levels among the young. 
It is also responsible for increases in crime, truancy, behavioral trouble, and other consequences of homes without protective adults. Most violent criminals come from broken homes. All social scientists, therapists, and others in authority know this. And every time I write about these trends, I get private messages from therapists, judges, lawyers, and others saying, we know this is true, and nobody can say it out loud. So now for part three, which is the brighter side of all this, because there is a brighter side. We need to understand it is not science that is driving people away from church. It is not resistance to the Beatitudes. As the defeat of communism ought to have taught us, there is no such thing as history with a capital H. To the contrary, the decline of faith, particularly Christian faith, is not foreordained. This point is not well understood, but it brings us to an important and I think irrefutable bit of evidence against this kind of historicism. Far from showing a steady decline throughout the 20th century, religiosity was actually on a marked upswing during the 15 or so years following World War II, right up until the invention of the birth control pill, in fact. The world, world War II was followed by a religious boom, not only in the United States, but across the West, very much including Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Western Europe, and other territories trending towards secularization today. That boom was also uh, was pan-Western in scope, and it applied to the vanquished as well as to the victorious, the neutral as well as to the others, the economically devastated as well as to the prosperous. Wow. Good night. <laughs>